Hi everyone, episode 116 is upon us, and as your host, I am happy that it is. I hope that you are enjoying August so far, or for all of you dairy product fans, I hope that you are enjoying our nation's official goat cheese month. I enjoy goat cheese myself on salads. Anyway, in the field of sports, we go with a dedication to a someone that once again, we've seen this uh, in a couple of recent episodes, once again, this individual has amazingly evaded a prior dedication, but no longer. Now, he went on an epic run, pun intended, as you will see, from August 3rd to August 9th of the year 1936 in Berlin, Germany. But it was also a historic run when you consider the geopolitical drama that played into that time. That's right. We dedicate episode 116 to the great Jesse Owens. Now, consider his feats of his feet in an early August week. On the 3rd of August, Owens won the 100-meter dash. Then the next day on the 4th, he won the long jump, which he already owned the world record for, by the way. And then the next day on the 5th, he kept going and he won the 200-meter sprint, defeating, by the way, teammate Mac Robinson, who was the brother of our episode 42 dedication, Jackie Robinson. Bet you didn't know that, constant listeners. And then on August 9th, which is the day this episode is first aired, Owens won his fourth gold medal in the 4x100-meter sprint relay, with the team setting a world record for that event. And interestingly, I found out that the U.S. track head coach, he had replaced two Jewish-American sprinters that were scheduled to run that race. They were Marty Glickman and Sam Stoller, and he replaced them with Jesse Owens and another runner. And Owens had initially protested the last-minute switch, but it was to no avail with the coaching staff. Interesting, especially considering those times and the location. Now, in less than one week in 1936, and a record-breaking performance of four gold medals. Not too shabby and not equaled until Carl Lewis at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. There's also a couple of very interesting non-sports aspects to Jesse Owens and those 1936 Olympics that, of course, were hosted by Nazi Germany. So first, there's this topic of what Hitler did or did not do at the event when it came to acknowledging Owens. I was taught at least that Hitler snubbed him, and the idea of having to congratulate an African-American who kept winning events was just unfathomable to a Nazi, let alone to Hitler. Well, the record on that is far from clear. It's actually pretty interesting when you get into the details. Owens himself was weighing in on this topic after the Olympics, and he responded uh, to to that issue at the time, he said, and I'm using his words here, Hitler had a certain time to come to the stadium and a certain time to leave. It happened he had to leave before the victory ceremony after the 100 meters race began at 5.45 p.m. But before he left, I was on my way to a broadcast and passed near his box. He waved at me and I waved back. That's the words of Jesse Owens. There's also an article from an African-American newspaper at the time that I found that described witnessing Hitler, and the term they used was salute Owens for having won gold at the 100-meter sprint. And an article in the Baltimore Sun back in 1936 reported that Hitler sent Owens a commemorative inscribed cabinet photograph of himself. Who knows for sure, I suppose, and not that it changes anything about one of the worst humans in history, uh, Hitler, that is, of course, not Jesse Owens, but interesting nonetheless. And here's another interesting point to consider with the politics of Jesse Owens having the audacity to win gold in the 1930s. In many ways, he was treated better in Europe and in Germany than he was at home, and he knew it, and he wasn't pleased about it. 
So later in 1936, Owens said to an audience of African-Americans at a Republican rally in Kansas City that, and again, I'm going to quote Owens here, Hitler didn't snub me. It was our president who snubbed me. The president didn't even send me a telegram, end quote. So in Germany, Owens traveled with and stayed in the same hotels as whites. When African-Americans in many parts of the United States had to stay in segregated hotels, and when Owens returned home, on one hand, he had a Manhattan ticker tape parade in his honor, but on the other hand, after the parade, he wasn't permitted to enter through the main doors of the Waldorf Astoria, and he had to travel up to the reception honoring him in a freight elevator. And by the way, FDR never invited Jesse Owens to the White House following his triumphs at the Olympic Games. I said it in past episodes, I'm not the biggest fan of FDR for many reasons, and this just happens to be one of them. But Owens' best day as a track and field athlete, it wasn't in 1936 or in Berlin, believe it or not. His best day was the prior year on May 25th, 1935, to be exact, because on that day, Jesse Owens set four world records in athletics, four in a day, actually over about 45 minutes during the Big Ten meet at Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he set three world records and tied a fourth for Ohio State, got more done in less than an hour than most people achieve in a lifetime, so a well-deserved and a much-too-late dedication of the far middle to Jesse Owens. All right, we are off and running like Jesse Owens. First connection will be that Owens ticker tape parade in Manhattan after the 36 Olympics and comparing that to how today's big city downtowns, including New York's Manhattan, are in big trouble. Now, we've discussed this a few times in the past, how the combination of the policies of the left, you know, being soft on crime, rampant and open drug use, remote work, um, broken public transit, all those things are cumulatively and slowly squeezing new life out of America's big city centers. But now the data are getting downright scary. The capital markets, along with Wall Street, they're starting to catch on and are starting to run for the exits faster than Jesse Owens. So let me walk you through some of these data points. First, bonds for public transit funding in New York City. They're getting cheaper as time goes on meaning investors are demanding bigger discounts in price as well as higher yields on those bonds because investors, they're viewing the bonds and the projects behind them as riskier. The spread on New York City transit bonds is an example. So the spread between the yield on those bonds versus top-rated municipal bonds increased over 50% since COVID. And that's going to spell trouble for cities like New York. Second, and we'll explore this in more detail in a minute or two, But there are basically, when you think about it, three big streams of revenue for large cities. You got fares from public transit. You got income taxes on workers' wages who work in the downtown. And then you've got taxes on commercial real estate uh, with respect to high rises and office towers. So how are those three revenue streams doing? Well, everyone is working remote in big cities these days. So not as much income taxes there. And that means they don't ride the subway to and from work, so not as much fare revenue. And the offices are now at least big portions of them sitting empty, which means tenants are not renewing leases and rent revenue is plummeting. And that's going to reduce the assessed value of the high rise or worse yet result in owner default, neither of which, of course, are going to be good for property tax revenue. That's why the spread over 10-year treasuries and commercial mortgage-backed securities 
is now north of nine percentage points. That's a huge spread. Now, those revenue woes, they have consequences. New York City is now closing its public libraries another day to save money. Trash is piling up. Public transit stations are filled with homeless and largely empty when it comes to commuters. And the downtown streets are also empty, particularly at night. And the worst might be yet to come. So you take those office buildings in downtowns until the long-term leases unwind. There's no telling how bad it's going to get for the building owners and investors and the tax revenue tied to the value of the buildings. What we do know is that the five largest real estate investment trusts that are focused on downtown office buildings, those are off more than 60% since the end of 2019. Ouch. Cell phone data. Let's talk a little bit about that. Cell phone data is intriguing, and I thought you'd be interested in the data. San Francisco sees downtown cell activity that is 32% of pre-COVID levels, basically just a third of what it was before COVID. Philly and Atlanta are less than half. LA is just over 60% of the level that it was pre-COVID. And no cell phone activity downtown, that basically means no people in downtown. Pretty shocking data. Office occupancy, I mentioned that uh, a minute ago. It isn't much better than the cell phone data. San Francisco, we'll use that as an example. Again, it hovers around 40% of pre-pandemic levels. New York's around 50% of what occupancies were before uh, pandemic. And LA is somewhere in between San Francisco and New York, somewhere between 40 and 50%. And there uh, is a bigger loser when it comes to taxpayer money. And that, of course, is in the arena of public transportation and public transportation funding. In San Francisco, the BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit Network, this past spring ran at one-third the volume it was at on ridership before pandemic. wasn't but a year ago now that President Biden ordered Americans to get back to work and, in his words, fill our great downtowns again. No one listened. Hasn't happened. Maybe that's the real Bidenomics 101. All this big city financial pain and lack of vitality It's cascading into states, which we can discuss next. So what ails New York City is going to ail New York State. And what hurts San Francisco and Los Angeles, that's going to hurt California. Same for Chicago and Illinois. That's exactly what's happening today. Tax revenues in states run by the left, three that I just mentioned, they're plummeting big time. So take New York. Recent tax collections this year almost a third lower than same time a year prior. That's a huge drop in a very short period of time. Personal income tax in the Empire State is off 45%, and the revised state budget in New York shows over $36 billion in shortfalls that are coming the next three years. Yikes. In the old gimmick of taxing the rich more, that might have run its course in places like New York. I didn't realize this, I'm not sure if you did, but millionaires or at least the ones that are left in New York, millionaires pay as much state income tax as the bottom 98.9% of filers in New York State. Now, what happens when more and more affluent leave the state and head south? It's a question that the leadership of New York should be asking itself. California, different situation in New York, of course, but in some ways, it's worse. In the Golden State, the top 0.5% of taxpayers, they pay 40% of the state income tax, But with the tech sector not doing well, the affluence capital gains contributions, 
They might be evaporating. Income tax collections overall in Cali, 35% off from prior year. Corporate tax is not much better. They're down 34%. And the state now says its budget deficit is going to be $32 billion. But you don't have to be a genius to assess the actual deficit is going to be even worse based on current realities. So where the left runs things, things appear to be eroding quickly. Here's a fun fact for you. Florida has 2.2 million more people than New York State. And Florida's state budget is half of New York's. Florida, at least fiscally, should be the template for success. In New York and California, they should be studies in what not to do and in studies as to what to avoid. So what is causing all this pain in our big downtowns and with large cities and now with states and even, frankly, our national finances and overall economy? Well, not the only, but a big and immediate driver of the problem are rising interest rates. From inflation, which we'll get to in a minute, But let's connect now to discussing whether interest rates have topped off or whether they will still need to rise. That's a hugely important question because as government and private finances start to weaken, rising interest rates, they're not going to make things any better. So a little bit of of technical background to set this up. There's inflation, and then there is the level that the Federal Reserve needs to set interest rates at. Now, interest rates are set to control inflation. So the Fed will have a targeted inflation rate that it deems desirable. And inflation is sort of like Goldilocks in a Three Bears story with the porridge, where you want inflation that's not too high, and you want inflation that's not too low or deflationary, but just right. Now, the Fed and many experts agree that the desired optimal level of inflation is around 2% over the long term and where employment is strong. So to hit the targeted inflation rate, The central bank, the Fed, is going to need to set interest rates at a level above the targeted inflation rate. Now, that difference or the spread between the targeted inflation rate of 2% and the interest rate is known in the technical circles as R star, or I refer to R star as the inflation-adjusted or real interest rate. Okay, so let's recap. Fed says it wants inflation to be at a 2% target long term. And the Fed also says, along with a lot of other experts in economics and academia, that that R star should be around 0.5%, which means the Fed and the experts think the long-term interest rate will end up being the 2% for inflation plus the R star of 0.5% or 2.5%, which, by the way, is much lower than where interest rates are today. And that expectation or hope that interest rates will decline and that inflation is ebbing towards 2%, that's what's bolstering stock markets these days, despite dropping corporate earnings expectations and despite ballooning government debt and geopolitical worries and so on. Everybody is basically banking on inflation ebbing and then dropping toward the target of 2% and the acceptable R-star being 0.5% and thus central bank rates soon to be cut down to around 2.5%. But we know a few sort of troubling or difficult truths First, you can't see or measure R-star objectively. Second, inflation is not ebbing or dropping towards 2%. Now, we've seen some recent data in mid-July that indicated inflation is ebbing, uh, but it's far from doing that, particularly in key areas like food. We'll have more on that in a minute. Now, what if we are now in an environment whereby the R-star needed 
or that spread above the target inflation it's needed, what if it's skyrocketed? What if it's gone up substantially? So if, say, you still want a 2% inflation rate as your target, but if R star is now 3 or 4% instead of the 0.5%, well, then you'd need interest rates to be in the 5 to 6% range long term. And that realization, constant listeners, would cause a freakout in the capital markets. The stock market would be hit hard, and the bond market, particularly for government, state, debt, that type of debt, would really take a beating. I think that the R star in reality has gone up, way up, well north of the 0.5% that the Fed and the experts like to assume. And I think I know why. I think I know what's increasing R star. It's because of government and its policies of recent times. So let's quickly run through some of the more notable policies that the left has dropped on America the past few years and think about what impact they will have on inflation. So you've got the pandemic spending programs that measure now in the trillions of dollars, which has just been a a literal tsunami of spending that stokes inflation. You've got government deficit spending and debt buildups that we've never seen the likes of before. That is fueling and stoking inflation, which could create a new higher level of R-star. Government subsidy to all kinds of different industries, from semiconductors to public transit uh, to education, or at least for those latter two industries, the public unions that control them. Um, Education, speaking of education, student debt forgiveness. A lot of it for professionals like doctors, lawyers, and other affluent graduates. And this student debt forgiveness is in the forms of delays or forbearance, suspensions of the debt, and of course, the attempted outright forgiveness one way or another, and with or without the Supreme Court agreeing, I might add. And then you've also got um, the issue with workforce overall. We've talked about workforce labor participation rate in prior episodes of the far middle, but if you think about a lot of the government policies individually and collectively that impact uh, worker participation rate and workforce within the U.S. economy, we're basically seeing government incentivize less work. That is creating, in some ways, a longer-term inflationary pressure or a spread when it comes to that R-star that you will need to bring inflation to a targeted level. And last but not least, and in fact, I think the biggest driver of all, perhaps, climate change policies, creating permanent energy scarcity and high energy prices, which are basically inputs to every economic activity that you can think of. There's a reset of energy supply and cost, and both are heading in the wrong directions by policy design and by throwing, of course, trillions of dollars of subsidy and tax credits at all kinds of different boondoggles in the process, which further stokes the inflationary fire. Now, what all these policies do in the end is they make it tougher, way tougher, to wrestle inflation to a desired level. So if the desired level is still going to be 2%, then our star that normally would need to be about 0.5% historically before these policies were in effect is now much, much higher with the policies in place. As I said, I think our star is around 3 to 4%, which means the Fed needs interest rates to be 5 to 6% long-term. But you know what? It probably is worse. I should add this point in the short term. Remember, our star is to keep inflation where the Federal Reserve will want it once it's there. But you need to get inflation first down to 2% to be in a position to then keep it at 2%. And since inflation isn't near 2% now, 
despite what some of the uh, news headlines have been. And again, we'll talk about this on an upcoming connection with, uh, with food prices and food inflation. An even higher interest rate will be needed in the short term or today than the 5 to 6% estimate I put out there in the long term. Bottom line is that the Fed, in your host's humble opinion, is nowhere near done increasing rates. Interest rates have to go higher, and they're going to have to do so quickly, all because of government policy, not because of weather or greed. Now, if you think that uh, climate policies are not the root cause of inflation, and that inflation is well on its way to being tamed, consider our next connection regarding food prices. Now, early on when we first experienced food inflation, we saw the prices run up drastically in the more immediate food categories, the the eggs, the produce, milk, butter, meat, so on, goat cheese, going back to our prior mention at the start of the episode. Now, those prices, they've abated somewhat, at least the, the price increases have abated. And that's because of the supply response. And frankly, shoppers consuming less of those products, that also helped. But guess what? Just about every other grocery store item is now experiencing substantial price inflation. So let me run through a few grocery items for you. Pretzels and chips, they're up 17% year on year. Cereal prices up 16%. Hot chocolate, 16%. Mayo, 23% price increase. Applesauce, 22%. On and on it goes. And again, those are all compared to the past year. So what's going on? What do these foods all have in common? Well, I do see a commonality. They're all prepackaged foods, meaning they have to be grown and processed and packaged and shipped and then ultimately sold. And every step of that supply chain that I just listed requires substantial inputs of energy to pull off. What's government been doing when it comes to energy supply and cost? That's right, shrinking supply and jacking up the cost via climate policies to save humanity. Climate policies, they yield energy scarcity. Energy scarcity yields energy inflation. Energy inflation yields food inflation, particularly for prepackaged goods like the ones I just mentioned. That's why inflation isn't going away anytime soon and why interest rates need to go up further and why our star is a lot higher now than the 0.5% the Fed is hoping for. Energy and food they're as fundamental as it gets in an economy. Set policy that creates scarcity and pumps up costs with those two, and it's going to spread across all segments of the economy. You know, it's sad to say it, but as our Fed and experts here try to wish away inflation, the EU of all institutions is finally starting to look at reality, and that'll serve as our next connection. Now, the European Central Bank, the ECB, said it would need to keep interest rates high for some time, And the ECB says inflation is stubborn and it's going to come down very slowly. Thus, interest rates need to stay high. So kudos to a central bank that actually works within reality. But, you know, this being the EU and an elite institution like the ECB, there's still going to be denial running amok. That's because the ECB won't admit that the root cause of persistent and stubbornly high inflation in the EU emanates from climate policies. Same problem in the U.S. is apparent in Europe. Heck, Europe was the originator of code red policies, so they suffer the longest under them. Yeah, kudos, ECB, for recognizing inflation isn't going away anytime soon and that rates will need to be higher for longer. But then again, shame on you for not calling out the root cause and realizing that if you kill climate policies, 
inflation gets quickly reined in and interest rates come down and the economy resets and starts to hum again. Now, I hate to depress you further, constant listener, but this climate policy-induced bout of inflation and high interest rates, it's going to get worse before better. Why? Our next connection explains why. In July last month, China announced it was restricting the export of two materials, germanium and gallium, used in semiconductors and solar panels. Now, this was big news because China controls the supply chains of just about all things needed to make solar panels and wind turbines and batteries that are needed or mandated in the forced energy transition. So we talked about this before. Code red policies, they are a boon to China and they create leverage for the CCP against the West. Environmentalism is a communist movement at heart, it often seems. So if China isn't afraid to use leverage, it's been gifted by Western policies with these two materials that are recently stopped exporting. What's it going to do with other crucial materials once our grids and transportation networks are forced to rely upon them? So just to remind you, two-thirds of the world's lithium and cobalt needed for EVs is processed and thus controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. 60% of global aluminum is controlled by China, 80% of polysilicon for solar, and just about every rare earth where China controls 90% or so of the processing capacity globally. And it's got a stranglehold on nickel supply chain by controlling mines in places like Indonesia. China runs the supply chains of wind, solar, batteries, and EVs. Policies in the West that mandate these things necessarily mean China then controls our grids and our roads. How's that a good and desirable thing for us? But that's exactly how environmentalists and leftist politicians present them, which is quite audacious. But it can get more audacious and more ridiculous. Take the situation with a think tank study about the preparedness of Taiwan to withstand attack from China. Now, this was from a Western think tank, mind you, not the Chinese Communist Party. This was one in Washington, D.C. And it came to the brilliant conclusion that Taiwan should rely more on wind and solar in its grid to be better prepared for an attack from China. What? <laughs> there are two big glaring problems with this assessment. First, wind and solar, we know they are inherently intermittent. If China decides to attack in winter when the sun isn't shining, then what? Or what if the wind isn't blowing? Wind and solar are about as bad as it gets on reliability. And in time of war, reliability is life and death. You want the gun to fire on demand all the time, not just that the sun shines or the wind blows. Same with the power and the grid in time of war. Second big problem, go back to what we just discussed. Who controls the supply chain of wind and the supply chain of solar these days? That's right, China does, the very country that you're afraid is going to invade. Why in the world would you build your grid and ground network to run off of components controlled by your would-be invader? Makes no sense. Beyond silly, uh, this think tank analysis jumps right into stupid, I think. Hey, Taiwan, avoid Chinese-controlled wind and solar. Build more natural gas capacity and nukes and coal quickly as if your future as a nation depended on it. We covered a lot this episode, I Am Beat, and I told you at the start, we first broadcast on August 9th. In 1854 on August 9th, the book titled Walden, 
by a guy named Henry David Thoreau was first published. Did you ever read it? I highly recommend it. It's not a book about nature, as most people think. To me, it's more a book about philosophy and self-reliance. It is an awesome work. And again, I highly, highly recommend it. You know, there are so many one-liners and just little quotes from this classic that are on point even in 2023, but I can share a few of my favorites with you uh, in the next minute. On one of the cooler details of the book, by the way, Thoreau's cabin that he wrote this in, it cost just over $28 to build. I know that because he broke down an itemized list of the cabin and its costs in the book that you can read line by line. Uh, Just a fascinating look back in time. If you're looking for let's say a little motivation and inspiration. Henry David delivers with this one. I learned this, at least by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. Isn't that true? And not surprisingly, you know, Thoreau was very comfortable, very comfortable with solitude. Um, There are times when I completely get what he was saying and share that, um, here's, here's his views on, on companionship and solitude. I find it wholesome to be alone the greater part of the time. To be in company, even with the best, is soon wearisome and dissipating. I love to be alone. I never found a companion that was so companionable as solitude. Pretty much sums up his views on that, doesn't he? How about this gem, which speaks to commitment, I think, and opportunity cost in life pursuits, an important topic. Quote, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. That is well said, and uh, that's something you always need to consider when investing the most valuable resource of all, of course, which is our time. And today, everyone worries about what the others are going to think and how many likes you get on social media, fitting in with the crowd, that type of thing. You know, Thoreau saw the folly in such pursuits way back in 1854. He said, quote, public opinion is a weak tyrant compared with our own private opinion. What a man thinks of himself, that it is which determines or rather indicates his fate, end quote. Right on. He also um, nails today's materialistic culture with saying, okay, most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not only not indispensable, but positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. (laughs) Outstanding. And if you feel overwhelmed time to time, here is some HDT for you, Henry David Thoreau. Quote, our life is frittered away by detail. And he goes on with simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be as two or three, and not a hundred or a thousand. Instead of a million, count half a dozen and keep your accounts on your thumbnail. Hey, you know, easier said than done, don't you think? And I could go on and on with the wisdom found in Walden. Again, if you haven't read it, read it. It's If it's been a while um, since you read it, read it again for a refresh. You'll be glad you did. And I will tell you first-time readers that Walden, it's one of those sort of, I call them the precious books, that warrant reading it with a pen or a pencil, or a highlighter in one hand. To me, that's like the mark of a great book. If you're reading it where you're marking it and annotating it, and at least the key passages of it with thoughts, um, that's a quality that all the great books share. It's almost like a demand that the book has to be nobly marked with the reader's hand. 
I'd like to think Thoreau would be happy and proud to know that you're marking up his passages. So it's now time to break the far middle bond until we reignite it again next week. I wish you well and hope your contemplations are fruitful ones.